Chapter thirty four of the Milky Way. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Milky Way by F. Tennyson Jesse. Chapter thirty four. Via Amorous. Two. Ocasan and Nicolette. We rushed across the level country at about fifty miles an hour, past cliff-high rows of black cypress and gentler bending poplars scattering at one place a regiment of beautiful pale blue cavalry on manoeuvres there was no wind screen to the car which perhaps was wise as it would probably have come to grief and by the time monsieur telemaque rushed us across that great suspension bridge from tarascon to beaucaire on which tartarin so feared to set foot my hair was in a warm web right over my face. Through it I caught sight on either hand of the brown roan, refracting blue here and there, like a starling's back, of its golden shoals and of the battlements of Beaucaire, rising clear and bright into the late afternoon sunshine on the further side. We abandoned the car in a little alley, and wandered about the town for a while through those narrow ways across which the tall old houses with their barred and mullioned windows lean as though to stare into each other's eyes under deep eaves of sculptured wood where carven hands came out from under the roofs as though for their support then we turned into the castle grounds and went up the steep slope of them through the chequered shade thrown by the pine-trees upon the long lush-growing grass the castle is mostly in ruins save for a tower or so the splendid sweep of the encircling walls and the great gateway and the place is allowed to run mercifully wild not tortured into gravel paths carpet beds and lawns which one may not press with an inquiring foot. A seat is placed unobtrusively here and there, and in great archways that are hollowed out of the walls, and must, I suppose, have once been alcoves in the castle rooms, chairs are placed, and here come the old women of Beaucaire to sit with their knitting in the sun, sheltered from the piercing breath of the mistral. The buff grey of the sunlit stonework behind them, with just the blue crescent of shadow curved over them by the cutting in of the arch, makes a brilliant decoration of the old black-clad, white-capped figures crouched chattering together. And I felt my fingers itching for a brush. We stood looking out a while over the faded brown fluted roofs of Beaucaire, a whole sea of them stretching and sloping away into a bright mistiness then wandered to the other side of the battlements and looked over the long curves of the rhone and its pale sandbanks away beyond tarascon to the bleached plains and hillocks of the open country then telemaque said to business which i could see struck peter as a goth-like way of putting it we all sat down in the grass under a friendly pine 
and I began the story of Aucassin and Nicolette. I told it as plainly and baldly as possible, because it is profanation to try and tell in your own way what has been told perfectly once and for all. And whether Telemaque ever caught anything of the undying romance of Aucassin's pursuit of Nicolette, I don't know. When I had finished with the lovers having such joy as never yet, he said something to the effect that he knew what it was to get an idea into his head so that it wouldn't come out that one, thus referring to Aucassin, who was so shapely of body and so full of all gracious qualities. Aucassin, the king of lovers, with his high and comely nose, his eyes grey and dancing, his hair curled in little gold rings about his clear face. But even Monsieur Poulatin gathered, I think, something of the mysterious quality of Nicolette that Walter Pater felt when he called her a beautiful, weird, foreign girl. He sat rubbing his downy black head for a moment, till it was more a la brosse than ever, and then delivered himself to the following astonishing effect. It is the finger of Providence. Romance, costume, incident, all are there. It can be done, and I, Telemaque Charlemagne Poulatin, am the man to do it. Do what? chorused Peter and I together. Film it was the brief and terrible response of Telemaque, the response we had so dreaded. Well, there it was, and we soon discovered it was no use fighting it. Monsieur Poulatin merely replied to all our cries of sacrilege with, If you help me, you will get well paid, and you will be able to see the thing is done after your ideas. If you don't, then I shall do it without you, and you will see then that the sacrilege will be far worse. And haunted by terrible visions of Nicolette dressed in a Louis Quatorze lace collar, or Aucassin with a moustache, we yielded. We all went back over the bridge to Tarascon and engaged rooms at the inn, and then I went to the poste restante where I found two letters awaiting me, one bearing English stamps, and I opened that first, all agog for news of Little John and the Changeling. It proved to be nothing of an exciting nature as regarded them, but for herself Gladeyes wrote that she was walking out with a gentleman from the bush, by which she did not mean the wilds of Australia but that district of London known as Shepherd's Bush. I breathed a sigh of relief at the thought of settling Gladeyes in life, and opened the other letter. This was a rather plaintive epistle from Chloe, from which one gathered that life was singularly black for her, but that Joe's wedding, which she had attended some weeks previously as best girl, had been peerless, Chas and Joe were now wrapped in oblivion somewhere, but Chloe was back in Paris alone, stodgily finishing her time at Colorossi's, 
hence these tears. I should have been worried, only I knew that probably by now Chloe was neck deep in some new affair, which she would gleefully describe to the whole world as really platonic this time, only to dissolve a few weeks hence in floods of tears with the wail, how was I to know he was feeling things the whole time? I thought it was just friendship, and now it's all spoilt. And the curious part of it would be that she would undoubtedly believe that she believed herself. Late that night, after I was abed, but while Peter and Monsieur Pouletin were still arguing in the common room below me, I had an idea. Jumping out of bed, I hid on the floor with the heel of my slipper, and then stuck my head out of the window. I have always hoped I did not look as absurd from below as Peter and Telemaque did from above, when they thrust their heads forth and turned themselves upside down to ask what I wanted. I've had an idea, I shrilled. You were saying, Monsieur Pouletin, you did not know anyone of a suitable type to play Nicolette, but I do. Chloe, Peter, Chloe. Of course, absolutely it, cried Peter. Have you a photo you could chuck down for Monsieur Pouletin to see? I had a few snapshots of Chloe in a light frock, being blown about by the wind, and they gave some little idea of her slim grace, the glitter of her hair, and the angelic look of her whole person. These I showered down on the upturned faces, and then retired to bed and to sleep. The next morning we wired to Chloe, and the day after that she arrived, and not she alone, but Joe and Chas with her. Explain this, cried I, falling into Joe's arms at the station. I thought you and Chas were the world forgetting, though not by the world forgot. So we have been for the last month, but I suppose it's no good expecting you or Peter to take count of the flight of time. It is one of my theories, said Peter, that time is all of one continuous piece, so to speak, and that we make a mistake even in portioning it off in past, present, and future. How much more of a mistake, then, to cut it into absurd squares like a child's puzzle? and label them January or February, or Monday or Tuesday. A little while ago, I added, we had to write to our publisher. We were at some farm in the middle of a plain, and we didn't know the date, but we knew the month, and the farm people knew the day of the week, and they produced one of those little calendars which have the date that each day of the week falls on all printed in a column below the initial of the day. Well, we all came to the conclusion that it was Wednesday, but whether the 7th, 14th, the 21st, or the 28th, no one could tell, and there was no way of finding out. So we put them all at the head of our letter, and let Mr. Brennan take his chance. And then, finished Peter, the beastly calendar turned out to be of the wrong year, so none of the dates was right after all, 
Jo was looking her best in a leaf-brown satin coat and skirt that just matched her eyes and hair, and Chas was at his man-of-the-worldliest, which made us very proud. Telemaque Charlemagne was visibly impressed. It is needless to say that he had no sooner set eyes on Chloe than he fell into raptures, as great, though not as poetical, as were Okasan's over his lady of the shining face. Joe, he declared, he could fit in as a court lady, though he added, and it was a perpetual joke against the long-suffering Joe. If you would only consent to wear the suitable costume, madame, what a man-at-arms you would make! Telemaque suggested that as his wife refused, Chas should fulfil that role. But Chas, who is nothing if not a looker-on at life, declined firmly. Of course by now the all-conquering Telemaque had discovered that Peter and I had each been a pro in our day, and no amount of honest avowal as to the fifth-rateness of the company in which we had played sufficed to check his enthusiasm. Peter, he vowed, must be his Okasan, since he was young, slim, and fair. I could not help thinking Peter's face had too puck-like a twist to it to be quite suitable, but here again Telemaque proved right. The addition of a wig of golden hair, which fell in a shining curve to his shoulders, transformed my whimsical long-faced companion to a young medieval knight. As for me, I was a little footpage, an eminently fitting choice, since my face is nothing in particular, and my legs really superior. Monsieur Pouletin was one of those producers who, instead of keeping a stock company always in readiness, worked with a nucleus of half a dozen character artistes, and augmented them by special leads as required, and also by the supers necessary for crowd work. This nucleus company now arrived from Paris. The supers sprang up apparently out of the earth, at a wave of Telemaque's wand. Medieval dresses arrived by the crateful from a Parisian expert in such matters, and the rehearsals began. The chief difficulty turned out to be the setting of the scenes, for Beaucaire Castle is undeniably in a ruined condition, and no sea laps its foot. The latter defect worried Monsieur Pouletin not at all, the river will do as well, said he placidly. Why should not the ships sail up from the sea? As to the sheltered state of the castle, and of the walls of the town, here too Monsieur Pouletin had his remedies, and incredible enough the last one was. To begin with, as he pointed out, very little space was necessary for a cinema scene, the focus of the lens was not wide, and for the figures to be of a reasonably interesting size on the screen, the space they moved in had to be confined. With one tower and a corner of the ramparts we could do wonders, so vowed Telemaque, 
and there was a complete gateway which could be besieged. As to the interior, that truly was a more complicated matter, and even were the castle still roofed and roomed, it would not have helped us as much light was necessary. Here, where most people would have been daunted, Monsieur Pouletin had another idea. There was a cinema studio at Lyon, and to Lyon we would all take train accordingly, to film the indoor scenes, as soon as ever Monsieur Pouletin had completed his arrangements for hiring the studio. There only remained to get on the right side of the authorities at Beaucaire, and we all doubted if this were possible, even to the winning tongue of Telemaque Charlemagne. Our hopes, for by now this organized and systematic desecration had reduced Peter almost to a state of coma, were dashed to the earth, however. Telemaque, his rosy face creased in smiles, burst into the common room of the inn, where we were all having lunch, and over a glass of absinthe detailed to us his success. Figure to yourself, cried he, that the mare ended by falling on my neck and calling me brother. We expressed a perhaps not wholly complimentary surprise, and asked how this miracle had been accomplished. Imagine, my children, said Telemaque, that the mare is none other than Henri Dupont, who used to be a boy at school with me. Later on we both entered the service of an hotel at Avignon as waiters. I left it for the cinema business. He prospered till he came to Beaucaire, and set up an hotel for himself. He did well, chiefly out of the Americans, and now he is mayor. Then you were great friends in the old days? I asked. Que non, que non, mademoiselle. Au contraire, parbleu, when we last parted we had to be rent asunder, not because we were embracing, but because we wished each to tear out the hair and eyes of the other. But then why? Attendez. The whole trouble was we both loved the same woman. Jeanne, a femme de chambre at the Avignon Hotel and I won her. But then how? I do not wish to speak unkindly of the dead, and I trust she rests in peace, said Telemaque piously. It was more than she ever let me do in life. It was notorious the way she treated men. Everyone heard of it. Her tongue and her fingernails, nom de nom, Never was husband so abused as I. Ah, well, a beautiful bronchitis removed her a year ago. So now you see how it was that Henri was so pleased to see me. I began by saying there was something I wished to ask him, and he seized me by the hand, crying, Ask what you will of me. I owe you eternal gratitude. From what did you not save me? Oh, yes, I sighed, and at what a cost to myself. After that, all was easy. 
and I have gained incredible concessions. I have leave to reconstruct, temporarily, part of the castle, to place towers and windows where I will. All in pasteboard, a castle of the theatre, you understand. It will be magnificent, and banners shall wave from the roof. This is hell, groaned Peter, and departed out of doors forthwith, a half-nibbled radish still in his hand. Tiens, he has the stomach-ache, that one, observed Monsieur Pouletin. Well, my children, is it not news of the most magnificent I bring you? He beamed at us in such joy that we had not the heart to disappoint him and we faithlessly applauded, glad in our cowardly way that Peter was not there to hear us. And to confess the truth, I was as sad as Peter, sadder, for mine was not a noble and aesthetic misery, quite the reverse. I had been happy enough as we all walked from the station to the inn together. I was still happy though with vague prickings of some other feelings at the rather uproarious little dinner which followed, but that night, when I had gone to bed, the fell thing came over me, wave upon wave. I wished we had never met Telemaque, who had turned our devout pilgrimage into opera bouffe, but that I could forgive myself for wishing. What filled me with shame was that I found I was regretting the advent of Joe, of Charles, and of Chloe, for there was no denying that it had broken up the solitude à deux to which I had been accustomed for so many weeks. The whole atmosphere had suffered sudden and violent disruption, and I felt forlorn and lonely amid the ruins. Lonely because Peter was, sustainedly, in one of his gloomiest moods, when he not only gave no help to anyone, but when he himself was very difficult to help. And instead of trying, I sulked inwardly, and was irritable outwardly. We made several excursions by train to places we had to see, but the joy had somehow gone out of it all, and the curious thing was that as Peter at last began to grow more cheerful, I became crosser. Chloe, frankly, soon lost patience with me. Jo bore it angelically, but at last even she raised her brows and exchanged glances with Chloe, and I rushed out and stared into the callous Rhone and felt that I hated the whole world and that nobody loved me. I was, indeed, a worse-than-hog. But ashamed as I felt then, it was as nothing to my shame when I discovered what was at the root of my misery. The dress rehearsal had just taken place. Incredible as it may sound, the ancient castle of Beaucaire had been duly profaned with pasteboard, and looked like the Earl's Court exhibition. We had performed in circumscribed areas, marked off just outside the angle of the lens vision, with pegged-down tape, to keep us in focus. The whole thing, on looking back, 
seems like a comic nightmare. All was over, and I, who had not been in on the last scenes, was once more in everyday attire. I had loitered back over the suspension bridge from Tarascon, changing at the inn, because I hoped not to see any more of the performance, and as I reached the castle I met the supers jostling down through the gateway, making brilliant splashes of vermilion and emerald, blue and purple, in the sunshine. I went on up into the grounds, and there I saw Peter and Chloe, still hand in hand, coming down the slope. He had discarded his wig and was grinning broadly, but still playing at being a medieval lord to his stately dame. I stood by a juniper bush, and at last I knew what was the matter with me. Jealousy, plain jealousy, hot waves of it. Oh, why, why hadn't I golden hair and chiselled features and a presence? If I had, then I could have played the Nicolette to Peter's Okasan. I, who was his Nicolette in real life, here a worse pang than any shot through my mind. Was I his Nicolette? I, with my mouse-coloured hair, my pale little face, my lack of all the pretty ways in which Chloe was so versed. After all, it had taken me a long time to realise that my affection for Peter was as strong as it was. Had it taken too long and tired him out? Chloe, of course, had been flirting with him, because she flirted as she breathed. But I knew she meant nothing, and indeed was genuinely unaware that she did it at all. But would Peter take it as lightly? He might think she really was in earnest, and I could not imagine the man able to resist Chloe if she set her heart on him. Indeed, I don't think I should have much opinion of a man who could. That terrible moment achieved some good, at least. For the revelation of it killed my bad temper there and then. There was no place for irritation in the feeling that stormed over me till I was almost drowning in it. And Peter's happiness, that stood out as the first thing of importance. I stepped towards them, with a firm, if somewhat forced, smile upon my countenance. The others, hot and exhausted-looking, now appeared, and we streamed down through the checkered shade of the pines, and so out to Tarascon, followed by an excited populace, Monsieur Telemaque Charlemagne Pouletin, who, like myself, was in ordinary garb fell in by my side. He was bubbling with relief and glorification, and I, reflecting that it was not his fault, he being but a tool of fate, let him prattle and gave him due praise. It only remained that he should add to my discomfort, and he did so between the two banks of the Rhone. It appeared that I, though, as he candidly remarked, not beautiful, had a petit minois chiffonné, 
which charmed all who had the felicity of beholding it, that my prowess in the French language made me an intelligent companion, and that never had he met one of my sex with so many good ideas. Did I not think it would be an excellent thing if I combined these advantages with those which he, Telemaque, as a man, and perhaps something of a genius, possessed? At first I did not understand, and stared blankly at him. Then, as he elaborated further, I felt that it was indeed the crowning touch to the whole opera bouffe. This suggestion that the fat, rosy, downy-headed producer of picture plays should produce me as Madame Poulatin. I enlarged on my total lack of dough, assured him he had overrated my capabilities, and by the time we had reached the inn, had succeeded in making him understand the impossibility of acceding to his request. Poor dear fat Telemaque! I have no doubt he soon consoled himself with fresh triumphs, and, I hope, a new Madame Poulatin but there were actual tears in his kindly little pig's eyes as I left him to fly up to the solitude of my own room. It had been the last nightmare, that walk over the hot suspension bridge, and this was what our Via Amoris had come to. Via Amoris, indeed. End of chapter 34